Tourist Perspective. Hello and welcome to this edition of Paris Perspective with me, David Coffey. Well, migration has become one of the most hotly debated issues of modern times. Now, in the Middle East, the rise of the Islamic State armed group, coupled with the failed popular insurrection against Syria's dictator Bashar al-Assad, and all that coupled with the aftermath of the failed Western-backed military interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan, this all led to a tsunami of refugees making the long and perilous journey towards Europe in search of a better life. Now, as that wave of refugees and migrants crashed on European shores, reaching its peak back in 2015, the welcome was a mixed bag, as fears of Islamist infiltration permeated the anti-migrant political debate and led to the exponential rise, one could say, of populist movements across the continent. Now, the novel Exiles from Paradise explores the confrontation between enlightened Islam and radicalism. It's a tale of two Franco-Iranian friends, Farhad and Reza, who take on diverging interpretations of Islam and its history going back centuries, and of course the challenges of being marginalised in modern society and their sense of exile. Now to discuss the background to her novel Exiles from Paradise, and indeed the shifting sands of migration across generations, I'm joined today by Brigitte Ades, who is the London Bureau Chief with Politique Internationale. Thank you very much for joining me today. I'm very happy to be with you. Well, Brigitte, this is a fantastic novel that has, um, was written in French, uh, launched down in the southern uh, city of Arles, um, and it's now been translated in, into English. Um, but the novel itself, I mean, we're talking about some very contemporary issues, and it is definitely something that Paris Perspective would really like to focus on. Your book brings the reader to Isfahan, to London, and to Paris, with the protagonists uh, really giving a critical snapshot of the cities through their experience. Now, now, first and foremost, what inspired you to write Exiles from Paradise? I felt that after 9-11, societies were making an amalgam between um, radical Islam and Muslims, our Muslims, the Muslims that have been living with us for so many years and decades. And I felt that it was very unfair and it was going to lead to a lot of problems. So I thought the best way was to write a story to show their side of the story, their side of the problem of identity that they would feel when they were coming to live here or were born here, mm -hmm. but they felt neither from there, neither from here. And they had to we find a place in their societies. And our part was very important to play, the part of the people uh, autochtone, our, our part, mm -hmm. to actually welcome these people. And, and so the best way was to get them to be understood. And the best way was to write a novel to get to understand the culture and where they came from. And indeed, understanding the culture, we're going to get to that. You had some very interesting experiences when researching the book. But um, now you are saying as the autochtone, as, in, as us, the indigenous inhabitants, if you will, of Europe. Um, how did you find or how different do you reckon the ordeals of migrants or people from migrant families are in, say, the UK compared to France? Uh, because there's always this old thing about multiculturalism versus full integration. Multiculturalism in the sake of or in the face of uh, the UK or you know you are subject to the Queen where in France it is full integration so you're subject to the law which experience is better that's a very interesting question I, I have to say that uh, I lived in both countries for a long time so mm. uh, I see the communitarism the communities that we create in the UK 
are very comfortable for Muslims. Mm. But they feel, they feel that they are living in a mini Islamabad, as I see in the book. They are uh, totally ostracized from the rest of the population. Mm -hmm. And they are tolerated, they are actually welcome, but they are not really integrated. And as a result, it leads to problems. Although I think the, the Muslims in the UK are, are more well-off than the Muslims in France in mm. general. They've done very well economically, but they, they have their own stores, their own clothes. And uh, I find that, you know, because they are not from in, in Pakistan anymore or in Afghanistan anymore, there is a bit of a discrepancy. And we have seen on both sides, whether it's a Paris or your French experience or the UK experience, it doesn't work very well. Both are flawed, essentially. Both are flawed. That's the thing. But, I mean, can, you ex can one um, approach the problems with the same ammunition, if you will, with the same solutions, or do they have to be approached differently because of the, the societies in which they live? That's the thing. I think the UK is so used to, to the colonial past and the mm. sort of respect. There is a big of respect, a big respect of communities. But at the same time, uh, I, I don't see any, any solution in either. I think the best solution is to make sure that, you know, we have to address the respect. It's so important that I've, I've read this book of Fukuyama recently, Identity. It's mm -hmm. so amazing that they say that from it's a need as eating, drinking, the recognition, mm. to be recognized as a human being, to be uh, glorified, if I say. And if you are not, if you feel that you are completely ignored, there is a tendency for some individuals to become totally mad. They'd rather do a bad deed than no deed at all. Yes. And that's what leads to extremes. Now, indeed, you touched on something there that I think is uh, quite interesting. You said that in, in Britain, the Muslim uh, population is usually more wealthy, but it still remains ghettoized to a point where even though they may be more affluent, they still stay within their own districts, their same areas. Now, but the one thing that is remarkable for me, uh, especially kind of looking in, in this election year here in France, um, like you have Sadiq Khan, who is a Muslim mayor of London, which itself is like an enclave of cosmopolitan, um, you know, forward-thinking Britain, surrounded by the Brexiteers. But he is a Muslim. Sadiq Khan is a very vocal, very uh, engaged uh, Muslim man who's in charge. Do you think the same thing could happen here at the Mairie du Pas de Paris, that we could ever have a Muslim mayor in charge of the, uh, the, the town hall? I think that may, it may happen in a few years, but I find that the difference between Sadiq Khan and our Muslims in the continental Europe, and especially in France, is that there is a more of a Sadikan is vocal, but he's vocal in a very multicultural way. Whereas our Muslims, I find that they are very, they're very much more traditional mm. in their approach of Islam. And uh, as a result, it's, it would take longer because th there is a more of a risk of a lack of you know, openness. Mm. I, have, I had a driver, a taxi driver, I love to speak to taxi driver, and they're always very, very nice and, and enlightened. And this man was happy, was voting for Macron with a sort of very mainstream man. <clears throat> and we're talking about everything. We agreed on a lot of things on politics and international politics. But then he said, oh, but then... You know, the Pakistanis, when they became, uh, they had a Muslim, uh, the Islamist uh, regime, that's when they became right. And he was saying, they now they cut the hands of thieves, they, they, they cut the throats of, of rapists. That's what should be done in France. So you see, this man that was 
we had the fantastic Switzerlandy became very extreme. So when one once it came to dealing with their his community's issues. Yes, and, and also the fact that he thought these people were rightly the wrong type of people, uh, the thieves or whatever. But it was the, the way, very radical in the way they were going to fight these people. And it, this threads into my my next question. Um, I mean, tell us about your experiences um, when researching Islamic communities um, for your book, uh, Exiles from Paradise. I mean, I. I think what you've said in the past is that it's this insidious nature uh, of radicalization that just comes and grows in normal, whatever one would like to call a normal mosque, that you don't really see. So tell us about your experience. Yes, I wanted to research about Islam and the way it was preached because I thought it was crucial and I was in the UK. So I went to a lot of mosques and I went to bookstores, the bookstores of the mosques. And I was saying, was quite happy because at the beginning I could, I went to Regent Sparks and I saw that the Sunni and Shiites were talking to each other. They were very friendly and everything was fine. And then I went to the bookstore and then I realized that a lot of the books that were there were very, very uh, subversive. Mm. They were books about jihad, about, you know, the fact that you should be integrating because if you integrate, then you're just bad Muslims. And things that I thought was very, very subversive because these Muslims are, are there to stay. They have to be integrated. They have to be part of the UK. But if you are told that they, no, nobody wants them, that they are not welcome, they won't be, feel recognized and welcome. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was a very... But it, and then I read well, such more and I realized because of the financing of the mosques by Saudis families... And then the fact that even there is an imam, actually there is a spy in each mosque and in each prayer room where they hear what he's preaching. And if he's not even preached the Wahhabit, he loses, they lose their job. Yeah. And, and as a result, nobody knows there is a spy except the, the, the imam. So. <gasps> A little aside here, I mean, you're talking about, now you say you've got the Wahhabists that have their spies in there because they're being funded by the Saudis. This is the mosques in the UK. Just a quick question. The books that you saw, were they written in English or in Arabic? They were written in English. They were written in English. So, I mean, it must they be were quite... translated. Yeah, translated. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure they'd be able to find whichever uh, publishing company actually put them forward if they needed to get back to the paper trail to where it came to. But a quick question, bringing it here to France. Uh, one of the main debates that has been on the table here in France, especially since the 2015 uh, terrorist attacks, has been an Islam de France, a French Islam, which, of course, will have no p- strings being pulled, or at least they would hope not, from directly from Riyadh, or elsewhere, do you think Islam de France will ever actually take root and will it ever actually get rid of radicalization? I think it's a good start. I think it has to be encouraged. I think it's difficult because there are a lot of different branches and they don't get along, but it's always it's often the case when there's power somewhere and money. But uh, I think it's, uh, it's unavoidable that we have to try because... Yeah. Uh, I think Islam is a fantastic religion when it's enlightened. In my in my book, I show that the hero goes back to his roots, realizes that there is an enlightened Islam. There are a lot of branches. There is also the mutazilists in France that are trying to bring uh, to reform Islam or to make it more uh, uh, able to adapt to modernity. Mm-hmm. But there is also this Islam of you know that you're not supposed to even understand what you pray, what you read. The free will is totally to be avoided. And all this is something that has to be fought. So I think if there is an Islam de France with the, the idea even 
accepting the laicity in the common places and uh, just praying inside your home or in the mosques, yeah. uh, that would be a good thing. But uh, I don't see it happen in a, in a day. It, it will take a while. It's like the modernization of all religions. It's like Catholicism pre-Vatican II. Absolutely. It was about putting the Bible into vernacular. It takes time. It takes centuries. And it could, unfortunately, takes a lot of blood and tears at some stages uh, right. in our history. Um, now, speaking uh, of history, um, your personal family history uh, is steeped in stories of displacement and migration. Um, now, you can tell us about your history, but I mean, as a French writer and journalist living in London, this is a bit of a trick question. Do you feel of yourself as an expat or a migrant or neither? Good question. I think I feel like an expat because I, I feel very profoundly European and French. But it, it took a few while. I am a third-generation Jewish uh, Sephardic living in France. And as I said, the French are very welcoming when people are assimilating, which was what my grandparents did. But uh, my grandparents were still migrants. I, I guess my parents were born in France, so they were more in, ingrained into French mm. system. And the culture was totally French. We have no idea of you know speaking uh, uh, Greek because of we came from Rhodes in Greece. Mm -hmm. We were from first 1492 Spanish Jews that were yeah, expulsed expelled, yeah. with, by Isabel the Catholic. But what is interesting is that I feel French, but I still feel a lot about exile. I really feel for these people. I really want them to be understanding the, country, the society where they are in now, mm. to be able to be comfortable because I believe that, like Plutarch believes that you are from where you are born. Yes. Like when I think about Archimedes, he was from Sicily. Do we ever think about Archimedes from Sicily? That's the thing. But now I think we have to think about Archimedes from Sicily. And yes. it's a different way of thinking. Because Again, to your family life, not getting too personal here, but in, in modern times, I mean, yeah. you yourself, you married uh, an Iranian man. Um, and of course, there's a, a massive Iranian community, well, definitely here in Paris as well, in, in London. One could say specifically dating back to 1979, where there was a big influx following the fall of the Shah. Just from your experience now, you know, you're married to an Iranian um, who is himself in exile, be it self-imposed or otherwise. Um, how do Iranians view Iran today from the outside looking in? How do they feel that the West has treated Iranians and how it's treated Iran? I mean, we've got a list here. We can get it off. We have, you know, Iran has the right to uranium enrichment. It signed up to the 2015 nuclear deal. It was kicked out of the 2015 nuclear deal by the former president of the USA. Uh, now they're trying to get them back to the table. But there is also, of course proxy wars happening in Yemen. You've got the power struggle that's happening in northern Syria going to Latakia. They have their straight road in there. They want to be near their friends Hezbollah up in northern Lebanon, etc., etc. I mean, I've got a lot of Iranian friends, erudite, clever, engaging, debating. They love questioning. They're great fun. How do they look at Iran today from the outside in? And how does your husband feel about uh, how the West has been treating things uh, in Tehran? So it's interesting because it has fluctuated, but mm. always there were a very big bond between Iranians of the diaspora and Iranians inside. Mm. I guess they're really do deciphering between the regime, which they don't like and they hate, 
and the Iranian people. And they very often feel sorry for the Iranian people, especially when they hear there are a lot of inflation, there is a lot of problems, economic problems, and so on and so forth. We have also, when I was the Iran-Iraq war, we had Oxford, I was at Oxford with my husband, so I could see that he was very upset with the way they had actually encouraged Saddam Hussein's invasion of Iran, of Iran or attack. Iran, it's not yeah. invasion, it was more an attack. Yeah. And he, they really wanted Iran to prevail. So it's interesting because at the same time, but you know, for example, for the nuclear deal, no, they are not in favor of the Iranian having the atomic bomb at all. Although they know that they would not use it in the wrong way because they are really very trusting in the Iranian wisdom mm. in general. And I think it's true. They are not worried that it would actually, but they worry about proliferation. Yeah. Saudi Arabia acquiring the bomb. Pakistan has it. Uh, a lot of people, well, Egypt would want it. So that's what worries them. But I, f I find it interesting to, to see that there is a big solidarity still with the culture, with the, I find it profoundly Iranian, my husband, still is after 30 years of exile. Mm, it's still there running deep. And, you know, looking here, identity politics, it's one of these buzzwords of uh, modern times. Um, we are... We have to mention the elections here in France. I mean, uh, they, they are coming up only in a couple of months' time um, here for Macron, President Macron looking to get a second mandate. But what he is really battling against now is a shift, a, a massive shift to the far right here in French politics. Um, the, even the centre-right uh, candidate Valérie Pécresse is known now for kind of giving little winks and nudges to the extreme right because everybody has to play this very hard right ticket. And specifically looking to shut the door almost completely on all migrants just to get past the first round and getting the first votes. How does that make you feel? I'm upset to see the recuperation, the way it's using uh, the migrant uh, fear of migrant or invasion to uh, play for their own benefit. Yeah. And I think it's sad. I think it's sad that it works. Uh, I see that the Brexit occurred because there was this horrible poster pretending that there would be hordes of migrants from Syria yeah. as soon as when they were not even in Schengen. So it was ridiculous that they were doing that, but it it worked. Yeah. So uh, because it was a few people that actually shifted, so uh, it was enough to change the the fate of Europe and 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 so on. So I think there is a big problem. I think it's a, it's, I wouldn't even say it's a just and fair game. It's actually dangerous, mm. but it works. And I'm really, that's what I'm upset with Zemmour, for example, because I think it's, it's, a, it's a, from somebody who comes from immigration himself. Should I mean, he's never a North African Jewish. Um, yes, he should uh, ancestry, never behave yeah. like that. But at the same time, he's using a fear and he's pushing the right buttons. So now I think that the right buttons have to be pushed by everyone in a way to appease you have to say these migrants have to be accepted. We know the French have history of migrations because we are the last country after there was a sea, so everybody came and stayed. Yeah. So as a result, we have uh, a lot of Italians. We had Portuguese. We had the Spanish. And look at Madame Hidalgo is a Spanish sure. second-generation yeah, Spanish, Paris, yeah. and the Monsieur Valls as well was the prime minister was Spanish. So. We have that. So I think there is no reason why we, we shouldn't be. But we have a part to play. But also the Muslim have this part to play. Yeah. Now, you, I mean, this is going to be one of, uh, I think we'll wrap up with this question, but seeing that you are the London Bureau Chief, I think it is, uh, uh, it's good to, to end with something yes. about your, your experience in London. Yeah. Uh, 
you talked about the lies there. I mean, that Britain was, wasn't even part of Schengen, that these migrants were not all flooding into the UK. Of course, there was the big red bus, which famously uh, just basically sold the entire population, what we say in English, a lemon. Uh, now, that's <laughs> because it was a lie. Um, you know, on a personal level, um, do you feel that the mood has uh, changed towards migrants in Britain since Brexit just over a year ago? I think the mood has changed. There, there was, I think there are less Europeans in the streets of London, at least, and in the UK in general. I think there was more of a unleashing of a kind of a, uh, open debates and, and, and discussions and before they were thinking about it, but they didn't really want to talk about it. Mm. But at the same time, I feel that, you know, the British are very tolerant people. And they are tolerant, and they are tolerant now. They have a lot of more Chinese. Asians are going to flow, <laughs> and, yeah. they, and they are. A European, not as much, but they are still around, and they are still fine. And uh, uh, American people are coming yeah. in for some reason. But I, I really feel that there is, uh, it's not as in France, maybe because now there is no election as well. That's Indeed. also the reason. Not yet. Even yeah. though Boris seems to be getting out and in and out of hot water yeah, on a regular right. basis, but uh, he hasn't been uh, he hasn't been pulled off uh, the yet. the podium just yet. Brigitte Ades, uh, London bureau chief with Politique Internationale and author of Exiles from Paradise. Thank you for being on Paris Perspective today. I was very happy to come. It was great to thank have you. Thank you very much. And thank you for logging on to Paris Perspective. And you can access all of our episodes on rfienglish.com forward slash podcasts and indeed wherever you get your podcasts i'm david coffee i'll be back in two weeks time